Hi, I'm James Gardner, host of Your History, Your Story, a podcast for everybody who loves stories about interesting people and events told by those who uncovered them from within their own family trees. This, we hope, will inspire you to discover and celebrate your history and your story. Nellie Olson was the arch nemesis of Laura Ingalls on the hit television series Little House on the Prairie, which ran from 1974 until 1983. Nellie, who was played by Alison Arngrim, was the character we all love to hate. In this episode of Your History, Your Story, we will be speaking with Alison, who, in addition to being an actress, is also an accomplished stand-up comedian and New York Times best-selling author of Confessions of a Prairie Bitch, How I Survived Nellie Olson and Learned to Love Being Hated. Allison has a passion for humanitarian causes and is currently serving as president, national spokesperson, and founding board member of the National Association to Protect Children. Allison is here today to share her story with us. I'd now like to welcome Allison Arngrim to our show. Welcome, Allison. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm a little starstruck because my wife, <laughs> my wife Kelly and I are big fans of Little House on the Prairie. Excellent. Yes, we, we've been watching it for years. And during Christmas time, we always like to watch Christmas at Plum Creek when you steal Laura's horse from her. It was a repossession. I was the repo man. She owed us the horse. She had offered the horse in trade for the stove. It was a, it was a legal repossession. I was repoing her horse. <laughs> On Christmas, yeah. Did, did your lawyer send a letter to, to uh, Paul? <laughs> I, I had a warrant. I was like, I've come for the horse. Yeah. <laughs> we, we love that one. And of course, the other one was the Christmas They Never Forgot, which is another all-time favorite. But I'd like to start off, Allison, by asking you, where were you born and where did you spend your earliest years? Well, I was born in New York and Queens, specifically. I was always say, I'm just a nice girl from Queens. Uh, you know, born in Queens, my family are Canadian, and uh, they came down from Canada through Vancouver, through Toronto, and eventually New York, and I was born in New York, and we moved out to L.A. when I was three-ish. I had my fourth birthday party at the Chateau Marmont on the Sunset Boulevard. Um, uh, yeah, so I, we were, I was three, we moved out, when we first moved to L.A., we lived at the Chateau Marmont on Sunset Boulevard, very famous venue obviously and and it was like an apartment hotel and it still is there's still and you know people think of it now as sort of semi-scandalous and all these celebrities it was like that then it was like you're at the chateau oh no i mean it was complete craziness and strange things going on in the hallway at all hours of the day and night and uh who was there sydney pache was i think upstairs and when I was a kid, and, every, and Paul Newman would stay there. He'd be in from New York, and Paul Newman would stay there. And so everybody was there. And I met uh, Beatrice Lilly, the famous British music hall star. And I, I didn't know who she was because I was four. And I was wandering the halls as, a, okay, right. It's like the, in 1968, let's let the children wander the halls. Yeah, because that was a normal thing to do. I guess just, I got away. I don't know. People did this in Chateau Marmont. And I found this little old lady. And chatter and um i brought her back to the apartment and it was sort of like a kitten i just like she followed me home can i keep her and <laughs> it's like she's adopting strange women oh my god it's b lily the british music hall star yeah okay and she became my friend and i made it very clear she was my friend not my parents friend she came to my fifth birthday party and it was my my buddy b lily who's a riot um so yeah so it was this very odd thing and we in hollywood and we 
we lived across from the chateau and then we moved back because the chateau is awesome and there's no reason to leave the chateau unless you have to and then eventually we had a house in the hills but we live in the hollywood hills i grew up right in hollywood with all the craziest people around yeah wow what an interesting start in life wow, wow that's terrific now you moved uh from queens then out to hollywood tell us about why you made that move and uh, I think what we're really going to talk about is your parents and what their careers were. Can you tell us what brought you to Hollywood and about yeah, your mom and dad? We were show folk. And uh, my parents met in the theater. My father and uh, my father, Thor Arngram, and a guy named Stuart Baker uh, founded the Totem Theater in Vancouver, British Columbia in the 90, early, early 1950s. And they, they had the exclusive rights to Tennessee Williams in, in for Canada. So they did Streetcar and, uh, yeah, the Streetcar Named Desire and all the Tennessee Williams plays, Glass Menagerie. And uh, my mother wound up in the theater company. And it was very funny. My story my parents told me is uh, my dad and Stuart started this theater and they got famous right away. People were like these two, really, they were like 20. They said these two young guys are running this theater and they got, they're doing all, all their shows are hits. Gotta go see them. And my mother who came, my father came from a farm in Saskatchewan, very poor. He, he basically was like Albert Ingalls from Little House in the Prairie. He was an orphan and got adopted by a farm family. It's like, you were Little House in the Prairie. Right. And as he said, he couldn't, he could hardly watch Little House. He's like, I did this. I left home at 15. If I never see another cow again, it'll be too soon. And so he fled the forest, Ugh, farming and went to the city. So he finds his theater and then my mother shows up and she was more Nellie Olson. My mother was Nellie Olson. She came from the very posh, rich family. And she shows up and says, I just graduated um, ladies finishing school of business college and um, I can do bookkeeping and, you know, stenography, all that. And I actually know how to keep books and do finance. I know you guys have no clue what you're doing business wise. So here's the deal. You bring me in. I keep the books. You guys don't go to jail. <laughs> that's good right because they knew it's like the producers my parents favorite movie was the producers it's like she says you guys have no idea what you're doing with the money do you no you don't she's like okay i come in and i keep the book so you guys stay out of jail and out of trouble with the irs and you give me all the female leads Ooh. and as my father said your mother made me an offer i couldn't refuse <laughs> but she's right you know and so that was it so the theater became very profitable as she started keeping the books and they went oh look i guess you're doing glass menagerie you're Lord. yeah and um she got all female leads and they were very successful they then moved to toronto and my brother was born there and then my mother started doing radio they both all started doing radio but my mother hadn't done radio but as soon as she started she was a huge hit and she's doing like multiple shows a day and then they moved to New York. And then my father was on Broadway. He was in Luther with Albert Finney on Broadway in like 1962. Uh, and Tamer Lane, directed by Tyrone Guthrie. I mean, it was like big freaking deal. He right. was on Broadway. And my mother started doing voiceover. And she um, did a, some commercials and radio and cartoons. And then she got a call to come to a comedy album. And comedy albums were just starting to become like really a thing, late 50s, early 60s. So she gets this call to come to a comedy album. And they said, we're going to do a comedy album about the president, JFK. And she's like, well, that's weird because like people kind of like Kennedy and we're going to make fun of him on this album. Is anybody going to buy that? And they said, well, it's pretty soft. We're not really going to be very mean. But yes, it's a comedy sketch. We're going to make fun of JFK and Jackie and the whole family. And she was brought in to be the voice of little Caroline and John John. For real. Is that like hysterical? 
So this is the famous album called The First Family, which pretty much anybody over 50 has like two copies of somewhere in their house. <laughs> Allison, you know, my family had that album that you're talking about, and I remember it. We used to play it on our phonograph, laugh, and my parents were laughing, and my brother was laughing, and I That's thought brilliant. it was funny. I was like five years old at the time. All of a sudden, we couldn't play it anymore. Yeah. You know? Well, the president was killed. There was supposed to be a second album. There was a second album. It was so huge. It was such a success. Of course, everyone loved it. Because it was on multiple levels. Like at five, you could laugh because the funny voices and little Caroline and John John. And, and when JFK, the rubber swan is mine. And my mother, the little voice, these talks do him so much good. And so people, kids liked it. And then, of course, the adults were screaming with laughter because he's like talking about Khrushchev and everything. It was a riot. So... It was a huge, huge hit. It made the Guinness Book of World Records. It was the fastest selling album in history. In the Guinness Book of World Records, Michael Jackson's Thriller was the first album to displace it. Wow. So my, it was huge. So my mother's like, oh my God, they're playing it in the supermarket. It was insane. And she became very famous. And then she got called to do every cartoon in the world. So she became like the huge person of voiceover. But they recorded a second album. And if anybody has the second album, it's a big collector's item. And the second album has more songs. There's a song called 10 Mile Hike. They go, and it's hilarious. They sing more and it's really funny. And literally it came out like November 1st. Oh. Like two uh, days, days before JFK was killed. Days. And they were like, well, this is going to be, oh, and that was just it. And there's a story that, um, but because Vaughn Meter, who played JFK, he took it really hard. He really did. It was very difficult for him. Um, although my mother said, well, I would have gone to have a career. The, the, the one regret my mother had was when they made the album, they offered people points, a percentage or a flat rate. And because absolutely no one thought the album would even get distribution, let alone sell, they all took the flat rate. Oh, <laughs> my mother said, you, you'd have gone to school in Switzerland. We had taken the rate. <laughs> you know how much money we would have taken, I'd taken the cut. Um, she said the producers retired to an island somewhere. Yeah. So, so um, she then got called because she was so famous to do every cartoon in the universe. And she became Casper, the friendly guest. She was yeah, Casper. Wow. Wow. See, now, now we're talking, now we're talking about cartoons that I was enamored with. These are, I grew up with these, these cartoons. I also understand, tell me if I'm wrong. She also did the voice of Gumby. Yeah. yeah. Who else? Well, she, she started doing that and then she did uh, Gumby. And of course, remember when uh, Pokey, they had the other little friends, Goo and Prickle. So she was Goo. And then Cloakey wound up doing Davy and Goliath for the Lutheran Church, which is really weird because Art Cloakey was this crazy hippie stoner weirdo doing Gumby, who was totally out there in the stratosphere, total hippie, dippy drugs, everything else. And then it's like, let's do Davy and Goliath, the religious cartoon. Okay. And so she was Davy. Um, and then she got hired to do Underdog. And she was Sweet Polly Purebred, Underdog's girlfriend. And my parents became like best friends with Wally Cox, who was Underdog. And it was huge and she was everybody i would turn on the cartoons on saturday morning and my mother was like two out of three cartoons had my mother's voice because she would guest in things and so i'm going that's my mother okay and that one's my mother and here she is again and it was just like it was crazy and she loved casper like because i mean hi i'm casper the friendly she had to talk like casper people say how does she do the voice i go no she just she just kind of sounds like that like she's casper um and when remember they only would have like two people in the studio it would be a woman and a guy and that's it. 
So if she's Gumby, she's Gumby's mom, she's Gumby's sister, and all the female voices. And when she's Davy, she's Davy, Davy's mom, Davy's sister, and all of Davy's friends. And the guy is the dad and the preacher and the fireman and the policeman. So when Davy's at home and his mom and his sister are there and his friends come over, my mother's having like an eight-way conversation. <laughs> That's talent. Oh, she's brilliant. So she would do this all the time, all the cartoons. It was so crazy. Um, so Lenny Bruce, the famous Lenny Bruce, it is legend. I think it is. It's probably true knowing Lenny Bruce. Lenny Bruce had to do a show, had to go on the night of the day that Kennedy was assassinated. And most people canceled their shows uh, or a few people just turned the whole thing into a memorial. And they said, no, you have to go on. And they said, Lenny, people want you to say something that will make sense of all of this, make them laugh, whatever. And he's like, how in the world? So Lenny Bruce walked out on stage and took the world's longest pause as people somberly clapped. And then he looked very sad and said, Vaughn Meter. And they hadn't thought until that moment, oh my God, what is Vaughn Meter from the first family album going to do all day? And they went, oh, that's terrible. And then they left. Um, and it's true. And Vaughn Meter did take it very hard. Um, but there, can you imagine? He was so identified with, with Kennedy. But so my mom launched from the Caroline thing to all the cartoons and then Casper was huge and then Gumby was huge and Underdog was huge. And so she was everything. She was a guest Smurf. She was a Smurf once. Mm -hmm. um, and then she did things. There was a movie, Alice in Wonderland in Paris. It was very strange, like a British, and she, oh. she's like everybody in that. Um, and so there's a bunch of various odd films and she dubbed people in films. And you know how like, even now they'll do that kind of ADR, that dubbing thing where they don't tell you who it is. They just decide to replace mm -hmm. some of the dialogue. <laughs> Sharon Tate, long before Valley of the Dolls, mm -hmm. made a sort of gothic horror film was one of her first movies and they wanted her to be more breathy and British. And of course, Sharon Tate was from Texas. She had a lovely sort of Texas accent. My mother dubbed Sharon Tate in a film. Really? It's the weirdest thing in the world. If you find a clip of a line, you're like, that's not how Sharon Tate talks. Wait, what? Oh my God, it's Casper the Friendly Ghost. Um, it's just, it's the weirdest thing. So she dubbed people. She was everybody. She was everybody. She was every cartoon and she was half the voices in the movies. It was just like my mother, if you were alive in the 60s, you were hearing my mother every 10 minutes. So from Sweet Polly Purebred to Sharon Tate. From Caroline Kennedy, it's like very strange. Um, so she she was very, 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 very big in the cartoons. And then my father, after you know, having been an actor, decided to become a manager. And he wound up working for Seymour Heller and Associates in the big 9,000 building on Sunset. And of course, his main client was Liberace. The Liberace. <laughs> Debbie Reynolds and people too. And later my dad started his own company. One of his first clients was Susan Anton. Oh, and Michael Onkeen. But Michael Onkeen, although he's a big star now and everything, you know, Twin Peaks and all that. At the time, he simply took on Michael Onkeen because my parents and his mom were best friends because his mom was Muriel Onkeen in Canada, huge actress. And she was the one who was Blanche Dubois when they did Streetcar Named Desire. They knew her from like 1953. So basically it was their friend's kid. I guess we'll help that Michael kid. I'll manage him. And then he wound up going on the rookies and becoming a huge star. Um, so yeah, so he was a manager. So we, and we moved out to LA actually because my brother got a job. I believe he was supposed to be in the singing nun and instead he wound up in the way West with Kirk Douglas and the entire family worked. Um, the dog did not get any work. The dog did not get work, but he did appear in several magazine articles. <laughs> 
Wow, that, that was a really good economic move that you made out to California, wasn't it? Everybody, the whole household just went, you know, I think we're moving to Hollywood. I think I think that's it. We've done everything in New York. We're, we're going to L.A. And then it just blew up, just blew up. <laughs> that's great. Also, I understand that your father did some Broadway acting. Yeah, yeah, that was the one he's so in Canada they had a Stratford Festival, a whole Shakespearean thing that's Stratford Festival. And the uh, Tyrone Guthrie, the famous director and actor, he headed it up and they had a whole company and a lot of Canadians came down. And so the first one he did was they did Tamerlane the Great, Tyrone Guthrie directed, and my father had a small part, and another Canadian actor, it's my dad's age, had a small part also in this, was a young, very good looking Canadian actor named William Shatner. Oh. And so yeah, my dad came up with Shatner. <laughs> Shatner. So I'm friends with Shatner on Twitter now. It's a very strange relationship. Do you know that William Shatner loves Little House on the Prairie? Apparently everybody from Star Trek is heavily into Little House on the Prairie. Really? Uh, who couldn't love Little House on the Prairie? Even people who won't admit it. They pull the blinds and cry and lie about it. Shatner loves the pro. He's got grandkids. And so he they're watching it together. So he's way into Little House. He was joking about Little House on the Prairie one day on Twitter. And I was like, wait, no way. And then he's like, what? Of course. And so we hit it. So there's like this like whole Twitter thing going on with me and Shatter. It's very funny. We promote each other's stuff. And um, he's very nice. And then I was looking at my dad's stuff on like the Broadway database. Oh, right. Okay. So he did Tamerlane first. And then he did Luther with Albert Finney. And I'm going, oh, the Stratford. And I went, no way. And then Shatner had said something about Tyrone Guthrie. And I went, okay, not the same production. And I like, yes, there it was. And I said, did you, were, do you remember that you were in this play? You know, that was my father. And he goes, was that Nellie's daddy? <laughs> <laughs> I love that. So yeah, so yeah, my my dad was on stage with Shatner in Caramel and the Great on Broadway, and when they were kids, and and then of course he did uh, um, uh, Luther, the very famous play, Albert Finney, uh, starring in that, and so um, he was quite the to do. And uh, between my mother doing commercials and cartoons, they were quite the New York couple. And so and then in L.A., that was as I said, my father's hanging out with Liberace and Debbie Reynolds and all these people. And so he would go, I would go see, Deb, uh, I was allowed to see Liberace's show as a child, which of course was hilarious because I'm like eight and I'm like, seriously, adults buy tickets to see this guy fly, he's flying over the stage. What is um, he was very nice. He showed me his piano watch and his candelabra rings and the whole bed. He was, I liked Liberace. And of course we lived around the corner from it. That's totally weird. So we moved to the Hollywood Hills and my dad's boss, Seymour, and if you ever saw the movie, it was uh, Behind the Candelabra. There was a big like HBO thing. Seymour Heller was played by Dan Aykroyd. And it, I'm telling you, that was the most accurate performance ever. And so Seymour says, you need to go rent a house in the Hollywood Hills to be near Liberace. As his manager, could you just go, I, I live over, just go right here renting a house and go live closer to Liberace. Okay. Um, so he, we move in up the road from Liberace, which meant on Halloween, we all went trick-or-treating to Liberace's house. Did he give out good candy? Yes, he was usually partying in Palm Springs, but he had a butler because he had a house in Palm Springs and a house in Vegas and a house in the Hollywood Hills. But he had a butler who would the full butler in the regalia in the suit come to the door with a huge silver tray with these little pumpkins. They were little black and orange plastic pumpkins filled with black and orange, really high end good jelly beans. And so it was like, go get your little Liberace pumpkin full of jelly beans. And they were delightful. No, no, he did not skimp on the candy. Yeah, like designer candy. 
<laughs> oh, and then of course, next door was Quinn Cummings. Remember Quinn Cummings from, she was in The Goodbye Girl. She was the kid in The Goodbye Girl, Oscar nominee and everything. And then she was on Family. Well, she was a, a baby. I was like eight. She was like two. And I lived next door to Quinn Cummings. And her family, her parents both worked like mad. And they had this marvelous woman who took care of her, but who spoke mostly Spanish. So she was very well taken care of. And she just loved the, the nanny, except one day her parents came home and that she said, hola, mama, buenos dias. And she spoke far more Spanish than she did English. And they said, well, we have to sort this out. So they said, would Allison like to come over and play with Quinn and basically get her speaking English? Really? And so I did. So technically, I taught Quinn Cummings how to speak English. We still joke about this today. <laughs> <laughs> That's a nice story. So you've got show business just in your blood. Yeah. 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 So this is a good segue into talking about Little House on the Prairie. Yes. I was uh, destined to be. So my parents were almost disappointed that I didn't start working as a baby. Um, I was auditioning as a very small child. And they're like, oh, she's not getting anything. Like, you're unemployed. And I started working as about six. I got, actually, I was five, because my Screen Actors Guild card actually says member since 1967. Mm -hmm. And wow. people say, are you 300 years old? How so, um, I yes, I started working about five. I did a commercial for Hunt's Ketchup. And I did a bunch of commercials. And I worked quite steadily as a little girl. I did an episode of Room 222. Uh, oh, there was a show when I was a little girl called Juvenile Jury. And you remember, okay, they had Art Linklitter's Kids Say the Darndest Things. I remember right. that, yep. Every other network, of course, had to rip it off and have their own bunch of smart aleck kids with a host to ask some questions. So everybody had their version. So the other network's version was called Juvenile Jury. And they had some wonderfully smart aleck kids on a panel. And we would have different guests come on. Sometimes we had letters from kids asking for advice. We had Buddy Hackett was a guest. We'd have famous people come on and have, you know, just interview them. And we had a guy who was a historian who had a whole spiel where he would come on dressed completely as George Washington. Mm -hmm. And he was an expert on George Washington. You could ask him anything about George Washington. Uh, we did that one. And I was, I was a regular. I was a panelist. It was like being Kitty Carlisle in the third grade. <laughs> I like third grade Kitty Carlisle. Third grade Kitty Carlisle. And so I was a regular panelist on this thing. So I was a talk show panelist as a child. Uh, <laughs> so many odd things I did. So I worked like mad. Then I was about 10. I made a movie mm -hmm. uh, called Throw Out the Anchor. It's not very good. I mean, let's just say it was very low budget. I got paid. I, th I think some people didn't even get paid, but my mother made them pay me. Um, Dina Merrill. Yes, the actress Dina Merrill, the post heiress, was in it. She started. And Richard Egan. Yeah, Richard. If I was in a movie, Richard Egan and Dina Merrill was 10. It's like, what? Um, but it was kind of it was sort of a ripoff of remember Houseboat with Sophia Loren. And this was kind of a cheap version of Houseboat. Richard Egan takes his son and daughter to Florida. They're going to get a houseboat, go on vacation, and the houseboat's not ready, and chaos ensues, and then he falls in love with Dina Merrill. And um, I got to go to Orlando, Florida for a couple of months, goof off, and visit Disney World when it just opened. It was great. Um, but you watch the movie, and you go, what was the budget for this thing? 29 cents? Did they have a lighting director? Um, it's on DVD. I actually have DVDs. The French love it. The French are so excited about it. Um, we, they put it out on DVD with subtitles. I have it with French subtitles. If you wish to learn your French while watching a terrible movie with Dina Merrill and Richard. Um, <laughs> so I, were, I have it. 
So you are uh, gaining some acting experience, but you're still about 10 years old, 10, 11 yeah. years old. So this, this series starts, it was uh, from, it started in 1974, Little House on the right. Prairie. I think it was on NBC yep. and uh, it went on eight seasons, but nine, nine now plus TV movies, technically almost 10 because of the TV movies. And it was my comeback. See, that's the thing is that people say, are you making a comeback now? You know, got a movie out and everything. I say, no, Little House was the comeback. I'm on my, you know, 17th comeback at this age. Um, <laughs> I made my first comeback at 12. I had done the movie. And so I'm about 11. And I haven't worked in like a whole year, which at my house was like just a, a crime. And my father sits me down. I'm 11. And my father sits me down and says, now, you haven't really been booking lately. If the agents manage to say you've been going on audition, you're not booking. And he says, You're not booking anything. You know, you might not work again. Many child actors work steadily when they're six, seven, eight, and then it kind of lags off as they hit puberty and they don't really work again until adulthood, or some of them never work again at all. Mm -hmm. So you need to prepare yourself that it may be over. Mm -hmm. He gave me the you may be washed up speech wow. at 11. Your oh, career is over. Wow. I was 11. And I took it, I took it very well. I'd grown up in showbiz. I went, yeah, you're right. I've totally seen this happen. I knew enough people to go, yeah, that I've seen that. So I'm like, wow, well, that might've been it. I had a good run. <laughs> <laughs> I had a good career. Started thinking about what I wanted to do with my retirement at 11. And then I go on this, to this, what they call the go see, where you go in the audition and you don't read. They just say, well, we're making a show and we want to meet you. So I go and I meet Ed Friendly and he says, I'm making a show about these books. I, like an idiot, of course, admit that I've never read the Little House books. So I'm like, oops, okay, I'm probably not getting this because I've never, I've never read the books. I'm sorry, I just haven't read the books. And I then get called in because they're making the show and I read for the part of Laura, which would have been very wrong. I did not get it. I read for the part of Mary. I did not get it. And they kept calling me back. And I kept thinking, what the heck is going on? So then, of course, they go make the pilot because they've hired, quite rightly, Melissa Gilbert and Melissa Sue Anderson to be Laura Ingalls and Mary Ingalls. And they're dead on. They're like so perfect. It's ridiculous. And they make the pilot. And I'm like, good. I move on. I forget about the whole thing and like doing other auditions. I get a call months and months later to audition. And I'm like, how many people are in this show? What did they cast of thousands? What they, I just I did that, and I get there, and they don't I do they tell me nothing. I get there, my father and I are sitting there, and they hand me these pages, and it's for a character called Nellie Olson. I haven't read the books. I am clueless, clueless. I am totally like in the dark. Going, da -da 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 -da, what's this? And I read these pages, and she's so awful. She's so mean. The things this child is saying. Um, she's terrible. She, it was the whole, my home is the best home in all of Walnut Grove. And she talks about how much everything costs in her house. She says terrible is these two little girls. And she's like, country girls. I bet country girls don't even know what a blackboard is. And I'm like, oh, I don't think the country girls have a penny. I'm like, who is this girl? And I turned to my father and said, this is not a normal part. He says, what are you talking about? I said, can I say this word on the show? I turned to my father at all of 12 and I said, this girl is a total bitch. And my father laughs and says, what do you, what do you mean? Come on, this is the child part of it. What, what? And I start reading it for him. Well, my father just about dies of laughter and goes, wow, you're, you're not kidding. He's terrible. Wow. And he's, this is great. And I start reading it. Well, my father's laughing. So he's like, stop, stop. He says, okay, you read it like that. And he says, I mean, exactly like that. Like, don't even rehearse it again. 
And I'm like, really? In fact, my father takes the pages away from me. He puts them face down. Just don't even look at it. Don't even look at it again. Don't read it again. Don't look at it. Don't think, don't move, don't breathe. You go in, you read it exactly like that. I went, okay. I go in. There's Fred Lee, you know, again. There's Michael Landon. Oh. I've seen him on Bonanza. I wasn't into Bonanza, but I certainly knew who he was. And, you know, and all the white teeth and the big hair. And he's stunning, stunning. So there's Michael Landon, all grinning. And uh, and then Ken McRae, the other producer. They're all there to read for producers. And all three of them are lined up on a couch. And I'm like, wow, okay, this is a big deal. So I say, okay, I'm reading a thing. And I start reading it. And the three men start laughing, like a lot. Well, I get to that whole, my home is the best home in all of Walnut Grove. And, you know, but our furniture, well, my father, Olson's Mercantile, says it's not polite to say what things cost, but it costs dear, let me tell you. And it's a, we have real lace curtains and all the windows, and it's hilarious. And the whole thing, we have three sets of dishes, one for every day, one for Sunday, and one for when someone very special and important comes to visit, which we have never even used yet. <laughs> which is hysterical because the kid doesn't get it. Nellie doesn't get it, that she's just let out the fact that they don't know anyone special mm-hmm. or important. They live in Walnut Grove, Minnesota. No one famous is coming to dinner. They're never going to use these dishes. But Nellie doesn't know that. So it's it's a gag. And I get the joke. And I don't know if every 11-year-old got the joke, but I did. So I do the thing. They're in hysterics. I've never seen three grown men laugh this hard, a 12-year-old kid. So they're laughing their heads off. And they said, could you do it again, please? And I said, yes, of course. What would you like me to change or take direction? And Michael Lannon says, nothing, just read the thing about the house again. I'm like, okie dokie. I read the thing about the house again. They scream their little heads off, punching each other in the, the L arm. And they said, thank you, that'll be all. And I walk out and that was it. By the time we got in the car and got home, I mean, that was it. I got home, my agent was on the phone. And immediately I walked out the door, they called my agent and said, she's hired. You landed the part. How You must have been like stunned. Was your father stunned or did he think, oh my goodness, I knew she was going to get the part just the way she read it to me. Yeah. Yeah. On the one hand, it was like, oh, thank God you got a job. Um, but it was also like, yeah, when he heard me read just even a few lines and was like, don't touch it, don't do anything, don't just read it like that, that he was like, oh man, this is it. And so I nailed it. He's like, nailed it. And that was it. I was hired on the spot. The rest is history. It was really cool because like in the books, Nellie has kind of a certain amount to do, but not as much as in the show. And then she kind of had an effect because the real Nellie was in Walnut Grove and she didn't follow Laura her whole life. She moved away. But Laura, in writing the books, people clamored for more Nellie. So she kind of created this character that was Stella Gilbert, Genevieve Masters and Nellie Owens and rolled them into one so that Nellie could miraculously reappear in Dismet, South Dakota and try to get Omanzo, and it's like, that never happened. Um, so she just made it to, because people said, what, what happened to Nellie? We want more Nellie. And she's like, oh man. Um, so Nellie became a thing. So by the time of the show, it's like Nellie had more to do, but I kind of, you know, I took it and ran with it. It was a great part. So I would be like more outrageous. And then a few episodes later, I'd get the script and they'd made her somewhat more outrageous and meaner. So I go, oh, okay, well, I'll see you that and raise you and we'd ante up and then I'd go further. And then the next year I'd get the scripts and they'd have gone further. And I go, oh, all right then. Until eventually I wound up faking being paralyzed and getting pushed down a hill in a wheelchair. <laughs> it escalates. Wow. So for some people who may not be familiar with the show, although a lot of people are familiar, tell us just a little bit about the character of 
Nellie and her relationship to probably the central character who was uh, Laura Ingalls, played by Melissa Gilbert. Yeah, you've got, I always say with Little House, you have so you have the real Laura and Nellie. Then you have Laura and Nellie as Laura portrayed them in the books. Then you have how we were portrayed on the show. So it gets very like Twilight Zone confusing. In real life, Laura Ingalls Wilder, who was born in Wisconsin and moved to Minnesota and then moved to Kansas and then moved back to Minnesota and then moved to Baroque, Iowa, and then moved to uh, Missouri and like 87 places in between. Um, she wrote the books about her childhood and there was a girl named Nellie Owens, was the Owens family. Instead of, they were um, uh, Nels and Harriet Olson ran the store on the show. In uh, real life, their names were uh, William and Margaret Owens. And William Margaret Owens had a store in Walnut Grove and they had two children named Nellie and Willie. That is totally real, actually happened. And Nellie had little blonde curls and apparently didn't get along with Laura. And rumor is she was kind of awful. I actually met one of her descendants over the phone and he said, oh yeah, see, Laura has no direct descendants because her daughter Rose was her only child and Rose didn't have kids. But Nellie had three kids and they all reproduced like mad. So there's a bunch of Nellie descendants. <laughs> I talked to this guy in Texas and he said they had gotten hold of an elderly aunt who was old enough to have met the original Nellie. And they showed her little house and she said, very accurate. So uh, Nellie, bit difficult, bit difficult. So um, she was difficult. And so Laura wrote about how Nellie was this terrible bully and so mean to her in, in school. So, and it, of course, was a smash. Uh, Banks of Plum Creek was one of the more popular books. She wrote like nine books. So then she had to bring back the character of Nellie when she got to Dismet, South Dakota. So that I think was really Genevieve Masters. It's all very complicated with the real Nellie. And the real Nellie's buried in Forest Grove, Oregon. And I've been to her grave. And the real Laura's buried in uh, Missouri, of course, at Mansfield. So um, there's the real ones. And then in the books, there's this long running battle with Laura and Nellie. And it's very soap operatic and tries to steal her boyfriend and all that. So when they did the show, they said, oh, yeah, this character. Now, that's that's gold. That's TV gold. And when they did the show, they said, well, okay, there's nine books and we can't have the entire show move every few weeks. we got to, like, pick one. And Michael Landon very smartly said, OK, Banks of Plum Creek, they've stopped traveling. They're in town. And so they're in town. So there's a store, there's a preacher, there's a school. We can have the Reverend Alden, we can have Miss Beale. There's a school with other children, there's a mill, there's a store, there's other characters. We can have the doctor and the preacher and the teacher and people to interact with every week and have people arrive in town. This makes more sense for a television series where you have to write hundreds of episodes. So he opted to follow On the Banks of Plum Creek in Walnut Grove, which is key Nelly chapters. And when the show started, they sort of followed the books. There's an uh, episode called Town Party, Country Party, episode called Country Girls, which are chapter titles in Laura's book. Then after a year or so, they said, there's just not enough material in the book to make an episode every single week. We're going to run out of stuff. So they just started like, oh, recycling old Bonanza episodes, writing whatever they want. And then the characters took on a life of their own because the way Melissa Gilbert played Laura and the way Melissa Sue played Mary and the way I played Nellie was so alive and like so its own thing michael and the writers went oh well what if this happened and so that's when we had crazy episodes and they were able to just kind of go berserk with the characters in the show and did um so i liked i kind of say nelly became so popular i like to say i i henry winkler fonzied uh that role oh, you, <laughs> you you absolutely did now you were on screen you and Melissa Gilbert, your characters were arch nemeses, right? Yeah, yeah. 
What about real life? I understand you guys were good friends. Right. That's a crazy thing. If you play, if you play, it's like if you play mortal enemies on a, on a in a film or a show, people tend to become very good friends. Uh, it's like if you play husband and wife on TV, you either love each other or hate each other. Mm-hmm. It's either you know like Bob Newhart and Suzanne Plachette, or you're going to murder each other. It's one or the other. No, but <laughs> nobody who's married to anyone on TV has neutral feelings. It's just one of the. And the same with mortal enemies. And you kind of get all your hostilities out on camera. So it's like, hey, you want to go to lunch later? And so Melissa and I hit it off. We were very young. And we both grew up in showbiz families because her dad was the actor Paul Gilbert. And her grandfather on her mother's side was Harry Crane, who created the Honeymooners. I mean, she was birthed into it, too. Mm. So she'd grown up in a totally Hollywood world. And so we were both, uh, they used to tease us and call us, you know, like old ladies. And we hit it off right away. And she had always wanted a sister. So next thing you know, we're having slumber parties at each other's house, which was hilarious because people would watch us on TV and go, wow, these two hate each other because we were very good at what we did. And we enjoyed it. We had so much fun doing it. It's like one day I got sick. It was 120 degrees or something. And I passed out with those clothes and and Melissa was pacing up and down in front of my dressing room, waiting for me to get better. Said, we have a fight scene later. She has to get better. I have to punch yeah. her in the face. And, um, we looked forward to our fighting scenes and we would, we did our own fight choreography. We were like, okay, we could do this. And then I, we were so excited. Oh my God, by the time we got to the mud fight episode, we never saw two people have so much fun in your lives. We had so much fun. We were just hysterics over the idea of beating each other up. And then we'd go out after work and get Slurpees at the 7-Eleven. <laughs> I love it. Are you guys still friends? Yes. Yeah, I have, I, I, someone asked me how many cast members of Little House do you have on speed dial on your phone? And the answer was 16. Real. That's how many of us are still speaking to each other and still close. Yes, we te- we, it's like texting and tweeting and Facebooking and whatnot. But uh, we do, we hang out. Baby Carrie, uh, one of the baby Carries, they were twins. Rachel lives near me and Mrs. Garvey lives about 10 minutes away. Uh, Dean lives, Almanzo lives in West LA. Uh, oh, oh, uh, Alice Garvey, the Mrs. Garvey who died in the fire, that's her show. Um, we see each other all the time. There was just a, an event at the Hollywood Museum and Dean Butler and I were there. In fact, I've been reading the Little House books online and the book where Romanzo proposes and they get married is coming up. And so Dean will want to read that. He'll, he takes over reading those days. Oh, I think so. Now, two of my favorite characters are the ones who play your parents, Harriet and Nels Olson, Catherine McGregor and Richard Bull. Well, Richard Bull was an old TV veteran. Richard Bull had gone to the Goodman School in Chicago, very prestigious acting school. And uh, I actually interviewed him once for a friend's magazine. They're like, did you hear me? I'm like, okay. And he told me this whole crazy story about how being an actor saved his life. It was World War II and he was going to go, but it was the, the worst part of World War II. So everyone who was going that week was going straight to the front and the casualties were extremely high. And he had friends going and they weren't coming back. And so people were starting to get a little freaked out. The woman at the college said, I need you in this play. All the men have gone to war. I've only got a handful of guys left to play the lead. And she wrote a letter to his congressman, like said, to the draft board. I know, no, he's like an essential worker. I need him for a couple of months to do this one show. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can have him and send him to Germany, but I need him right now. So you can't send him overseas. I need him this minute to finish this play. 
And he's like, uh, okay. <laughs> so he stayed. And he said, by the time he did get on the plane and go to war, things had settled down. America was winning by then. And he said, so he said, probably if I'd gone when I first wanted, I, I might've died in the first 10 minutes. So mm -hmm. I'm convinced that I survived World War II because I went in a better time. And in World War II, he was making films. They put him to work doing like a lot of the educational films for the soldiers because he had such talent that he was brilliant. He worked so much in TV. If you flip channels, well, if you watch things like The Twilight Zone and mm -hmm. uh, Bonanza and Gunsmoke, you'll see half the cast, a little house on all these shows over and so Richard Bull worked like mad. There's a show called Nickel. He was in, he was in everything. And um, he was in the Andromeda Strain, one of my favorite sci-fi horror films. He's in that. He was in everything. And so I'm sure he had the same thing. Oh, what's this show I'm reading for? And then, boom, like, I mean, they had to have hired him on the spot, too. That face, the reactions he had. Oh, he's a nice guy. He, he's, he's such a contrast to his wife, the character of his wife. She, she was, you can kind of see that Nellie kind of takes... Oh, her. and she encouraged it. She was the terrible mother. She was totally narcissistic and encouraged all its terrible behavior in her children. And and Richard was the one we say voted most like his character. Although I remember asking his wife once, okay, how is he like Mr. Olson? How is he not like Mr. Olson's wife, actress, uh, Bobby Bull? And she said, well, yes, he is a lot like Nels. He is just massively patient and intelligent and lovely. She said, however, there's a key difference. Richard would not be married to someone like Harriet Holson. He would not last five minutes. He would leave. He would not stay. And she said, and if I really acted like Harriet Olson, he would be out of here in about five seconds in a heartbeat. He would go, no, you're on your own. Uh, so she said, that is the one difference. He would not. If somebody Harriet, he'd be like, I don't need this. Uh, <laughs> he was so rational and logical. Catherine McGregor, mm -hmm. a force of nature unto herself, a law unto herself, like Mrs. Olson, she had studied in New York with Meisner and all the famous people. And she was very method and very operatic and elaborate and very big in theater. So she comes down, she done way more theater than TV. So she comes flying in, just arms waving and like blowing up the screen. They had to keep telling, could you take it down a notch? Position? You're not playing to the back row. The camera's right here. But she said in an interview once that she realized, she said, wait a minute, this woman is real, but not really. She said, these are the memories of a nine-year-old girl. This is Laura Ingalls Wilder talking about how she was a little girl. So these are the memories of a poor little girl coming into the store and looking up at this imposing woman all in black who runs the store and who's mean, who's mean to her mother. For a nine-year-old girl in the 1800s, for some woman disrespecting her mother and caring, she said, she's a monster in this child's eyes. So she says, oh, I'm playing it like the nightmare of this nine-year-old girl. And that's why it was so completely banana boats. Um, very eccentric woman, much kinder than Mrs. Olson. I always said she took in stray people and animals. She was lovely, but she was extraordinarily eccentric and opinionated. And if you met her, you might say, well, well okay, it's Harriet. Yep, 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 yep. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like that. So tell me, what was it like to work for Michael Landon? That man, he was like shot from a gun. I mean, I met Carol Spinney, the guy who was Big Bird and Oscar the Grouch. And we compared notes about Jim Henson and Michael Landon. We sort of said, I, I love Jim Henson. He loved Michael Landon. We sat there and compared notes and said, are these the same guy? Um, Michael was very, very driven. And he wanted to work all the time because he came straight off an ends in a little house and he did Highway to Heaven. He had a fourth series ready. Um, he was there at work before the sun was up, before anybody else. You knew he was at work because you could hear his laugh, his giggle. You'd hear, 
he laughed like a girl. <laughs> I and love that laugh. Yep. That was real. He didn't make that up. High pitched giggle. Oh, Michael's here. And he was so crazy. And he worked so hard. We had, I mean, the episodes were all like brought in ahead of schedule and under budget and everything. So it was real. Chop, chop. You're going to work. So he he worked at high speed. Other actors would come to the set and said, this this call sheet, this this schedule, the call sheet says you're going to film more than 12 pages today. We'd say, yes. Remember, this is 35 millimeters and digital this is the old school. Got to get the film canister. They said, you can't film 12 pages in a day. That's a lot. That's too many scenes. It takes a long time. I said, watch this. And we would bang that stuff out. And he liked doing the show with the kids because the kids had to knock off after nine hours. So he could get most of the crew home for dinner at a reasonable hour. They, they didn't shoot way into the night. If they shot after the kids left, they still left at like six or seven. So he had told the crew, he said, you'll all, you'll all go home for dinner. You won't be out all night. And we'd go on location and stuff. But he was mad as a hatter. He was the, a mad scientist of episodic TV. He would come up with these ideas. Okay, Nellie marrying Percival. So I'm sitting in makeup. And Michael Landon comes leaping. He never, he didn't walk. He like bounded and bounced and left. Comes bounding into makeup and says, okay, okay, you're getting married. <laughs> Your character's getting married. And it's really great. He's this little short Jewish guy who won't take anything off of anybody. And he runs out of the room. Like in, in mid-sentence, he just runs out. I'm like, the hell is going on? And I thought, who's going to marry Nelly? It's terrible. And then he comes back in. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then he tells Mrs. Olsen to be quiet. And then this thing happens. And, and he runs out of the room. And he's like, doing, I'm like, this is very weird. So I finish makeup and I go out the hall and there's his dressing room, doors open. He gets hit with the door open to his dressing room. He can talk. And he's got a big yellow legal pad. He wrote everything by hand. He had a yellow legal pad and a pencil. Mm-hmm. He'd write the episodes and somebody else type them up. He's scribbling furiously on this yellow legal pad. And I said, excuse me. Yes. Are you writing this episode now? Yeah. Yeah. He was in the middle of writing it. And he would get an idea and run into makeup and tell me and then run back out and go write it down. And I said, you're writing it now. Yeah. Aren't we filming that in like two weeks, like really soon? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It'll be done by then. This was the kind of wackadoo stuff that was going on. So now to be fair, he was not everyone's cup of tea. There's a book coming out, as you may know, is out now uh, from Karen Grassley. And she apparently drove her bananas because, as I said, that driven thing 24-7 drive you crazy. But he was so brilliant and he was very kind to us children. And he was very, very, very one of the funniest people I ever met or ever worked. He was hilarious. And he was so talented. I mean, he was writing the show, directing the show, producing the show. He did everything. He was a genius. He was underrated. He was a genius. He was like like Jim Henson, who created everything and did everything. Michael is absolutely brilliant, off the charts, crazy. But I mean, the the books and the stories and everything out there, I mean, yes, he drank. I mean, it was it was the 70s mm-hmm. and the crew was older. They'd come over from Bonanza. So they were from the 50s. So it was like mad men with the cigarettes and the beer and they'd have the martini lunch and the cigarettes and everything. And I'm like, this is Little House on the Prairie. But by God, they made that show. It was the strangest. I can't think of any work environment like that. I made a movie in France with Jean-Pierre Mocky. And everyone said, Jean-Pierre Mocky works everyone too hard and too fast. They said, are you going to be okay? Jean-Pierre Mocky works at a very quick pace. And I said, apparently none of you have ever worked for Michael Landon. <laughs> he was a genius, though. And I must say that every show that he did seemed to promote family values and, uh, you know, community. And of course, you'd have to have a bad guy. You have to have a bad guy somewhere in, in shows. But they were just feel good shows. They just made you feel good. 
We took on everything. I mean, during the pandemic, people realized that Little House had an episode called Quarantine and another one called Plague. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. We covered every topic. We dealt with racism. We dealt with drug addiction, mm -hmm. alcoholism, child abuse. You name it. It got covered on Little House on the Prairie. So it was amazing. And I think he was seeking the perfect family because, as you know, he mean, he was married a couple of times. Yeah. So he like wasn't getting his home life when you I mean, he made that movie, The Loneliest Runner, about his childhood, which is very difficult. So he was like vicariously living through Charles Ingalls and Little House on the Prairie and this perfect family because he wasn't getting it in his own life. Little House was his therapy. We were all sitting there. Michael was getting his psychotherapy by making Little House on the Prairie. That is so interesting. I have a couple of things I want to ask you about Little House. Mm -hmm. uh, one is, did you have a favorite episode? Absolutely. My favorite episode, which is apparently everyone who's a Nelly fan's favorite episode, the one where I go down the hill in the wheelchair. Bunny. Yep. Yep, 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 yep. <laughs> I've seen that scene a number of times. <laughs> right? And it never gets old. It's too funny. When do you do that? They didn't do it on the Waltons. They certainly didn't do it in the Brady Bunch. Who goes down a hill in a wheelchair? You did. I did. So, yeah, no, that's my, and the reason I also like it is, okay, in most episodes, Nellie is ruining Laura's life and making her life hell and doing things to her. In that episode, Nellie actually ruins everybody's life. She affects the whole town. Because remember, Pa has to drop what he's doing and go make her a wheelchair. Her parents, she doesn't let her parents in on it. She's pretending she's paralyzed and crippled, never going to walk again. And her parents are devastated. Nels and Harriet are crying. Mrs. Olsen's hysterical. Uh -huh. There's a scene where Richard Bull is sitting in the storeroom quietly crying. They think their daughter's not going to walk again. Uh -huh. And she lets them suffer and things like this. Um, she gets, Doc Baker is at his wit's end. He can't figure out why he can't make her walk and why, because she's lying. She totally has feeling in her legs. And she's like, so he thinks he's failed as a doctor. The whole town is dragged into this crazy girl's drama. And she just makes everyone miss her. And then Miss Beetle has to do the assignments for her and give them to Laura. And as I said, Charles has to build a chair. So she's not just like, oh, I'm going to do this thing that's going to really mess up things for Laura. She's dragged all these adults. Everybody. It's awful. That's my favorite episode. <laughs> oh, yeah. Did I hear that you actually had sprained your arm or something? Broken. Yeah, because... um. I had skateboarding like the, and, and wasn't that good at it. I was standing still actually. And I fell off my skate. skate I just tipped over and broke my um, left wrist and got a big knot on my head. Too. It was awful. So I show up with the cast and I'm called down to the office. They're like, how bad is it? And they were like, <laughs> so they said, well, we'll rearrange some episodes. And what we'll do is we'll write it in because she falls off a horse. So let's say she really breaks her arm but fakes the paralysis. So they put an 1800s wooden cast with the old bandages, like a Doc Baker cast over my real cast. So when Doc Baker, Kevin Hagen says, um, oh, you can use your other arm to move the chair. I'm like, actually I can't because um, it's actually, it's not a problem. Um, so yeah, I, I actually shot that whole thing with a broken arm. And then we like skipped an episode, like put some, and then we did an episode. By the time we got to the next one, I had a much smaller cast and we just kind of shot around it. That is so clever that they did that, actually. But uh, I did want to ask you, when you watch the series, you know, we watch the series over the years and reruns and this, that, and the other, the different scenes or settings become like home to the, the viewer. One is the Ingalls cabin. And then, of course, the store where Nellie lives. Also, there's the schoolhouse. Some of those right. little sets. 
you know, we just see the the show version. What what were those settings? Where was the actual shooting done and what did it look like? How did it feel it on that so set? The number of people who were like, think it's real. They're like, well, where's the town? I go, well, there's an actual town called Walnut Grove in Minnesota that we didn't film in. It's lovely. Laura lived there. They don't have a lot of the old buildings. Uh, Missouri and Desmet, South Dakota have way more original buildings that Laura was connected to. But Walnut Grove is adorable and they have a museum and you should totally visit and they have a pageant. Laura lived there. But we didn't shoot it there. The Plum Creek, the real Plum Creek does look very much like our creek in the show. Uh, Michael Landon found Simi Valley. Simi Valley, California is a lovely place off the 118 freeway out here. And it's about, you know, 40 minutes drive from Hollywood. But it's, they have a place called Big Sky Ranch. And Big Sky Ranch has had literally everything filmed there. I'm watching old Westerns, black and white Westerns on TV. And I'm like, and they're in Walnut Grove. There it is. And that's where the mercantile was. I can see, and then I watch a truck commercial and the big truck comes around the curve and I go, and that's where the mud fight was right there. Yeah. And so it's in every show. I'm flipping channels and I'm seeing Walnut Grove, Simi Valley in every single show. So Big Sky Ranch, and they built these sets, the exteriors. Now the interiors, mm. the inside of the school, the mercantile, the house, that's all at Paramount Studios. We were shooting in Paramount Studios in the soundstage with sets. And then we moved to MGM, did the same thing. But the outside, they built a whole little fake town out there in Big Sky Ranch, most of the buildings were totally empty. The school looked very realistic from the outside. When you walked in, it was just plasterboard. There was nothing. We, in fact, used it because, you know, when the child actors have to have three hours school on the set, we put a bunch of folding tables and chairs in there and we would go in there and have our three hour school to do our study. It was our study hall. So it was funny. We'd go, oh, let's go to school. <laughs> we'd go into the school building, but with modern chairs. Um, that was the running joke because they would shoot the exterior scenes a few days. And then we, a few days later, we'd go to the interior scenes at Paramount and we'd shoot all the stuff that was interior. So I would run up the steps of the schoolhouse on Monday, but I wouldn't sit down and take my seat until Thursday. It's like all movies and TV shows are shot totally out of sequence. And so we go to see me shoot all the outdoor things. So you'd run up the stairs, you'd go knock, knock and on the door, be entering all of these places and then cut. And then days later, you'd like come in. So it was all very confusing. Um, the only buildings you kind of saw the inside of the Mercantile and Nelly's Hotel, because they had those giant glass windows. Mm -hmm. So they would have to dress the set, as it were, and put in the bolts of fabric. And so sometimes, because the window was so big, we would use it. And I remember the hotel, when I got the hotel that episode, I don't think they'd finished the interior sets yet back at the MGM. So we had just done the exterior shots and they said, well, how much can we use of the interior? Go for it. And so they just took like the roof off one side and started shooting. We used some of the interior, but you would see someone go through the door of the mercantile or the hotel. And it was so big, they could just throw open the doors and shove the camera and shoot some of that stuff in the front area, at least. And so the very front area of the mercantile store and there, we would sometimes shoot out there, but there's no upstairs, like Nellie's bedroom. Mm -hmm. if you go into that mercantile, there's nothing. It's hollow. When I peeked out the window, yeah. I was on a ladder with a guy holding my leg so I wouldn't fall. <laughs> I'm standing on a ladder, peeking out, putting nothing in there. It's oh, completely it's so cool. empty to the roof. I love it. It's a little behind the scenes. I love it. It's so wonderful. The bell. I have bad news about the bell, the church uh -oh. bell. The bell. Very happened? sad. Very sorry about the bell. So we had a whole episode about the making of the bell, and that'd be a ding, ding, ding. It did not. The bell was made of sort of like paper mache kind of fiberglass material. It's mm -hmm. fake, sprayed to look like brass. Mm -hmm. And when Miss Beetle would pull the cord, it went thub, 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 
it didn't do anything. And in the studio, in the soundstage, they would put in, and they had an orchestra to the music and they had a guy somewhere go, ding, in a studio and they'd put in the soundtrack of the beautiful bell ringing. Oh, behind the scenes. I love that little tidbit. <laughs> now, Allison, you sometimes hear from people who, who are child actors and actresses who say, I didn't have a regular childhood. I missed a regular childhood and uh, they have some regrets or whatever. Did you ever feel that way or have you ever felt that way? Well, I guess the reason I'm not as bad off is that I was already not having a regular childhood. Mm. I mean, like I said, it's wandering the halls of the Chateau Marmont with B. Lily um, <laughs> and hanging out with Liberace. So everything had already gone completely off the rails of normal years ago. Um, so I already wasn't having a normal childhood. My whole childhood was crazy. And so by the time I got Little House, it was like, well, this is this is an improvement. Um, so it was already different. I was in showbiz. And I think some of the kids whose families are in show business have a better understanding because it was treated as a job at my house. I got my money. Um, many people, the money gets so I got my paycheck. I had a trust fund. A certain percentage was put aside in a trust fund until I was 18. And the rest of it, I was like, well, here's your paycheck. Don't spend it all in one place. I had a, I had a checking account at 13. So I had access to my money even as a teenager. And then um, an amount was put away till I was 18. Then I bought a condo and everything. So I had my money. It was treated as a job. It didn't occur. As my father said, he found out that even some of my friends' parents had stolen their money. He said, I could have stolen that money and gotten away with it. I could have bought myself a boat. Are you kidding me? I know it's that easy. He's like, here I am worried about going to jail. Um, so it's, uh, I had my money, which is unusual. It was treated as a job since everyone in my family worked on sets. It was like, how was work today? It was like, it was, there was some sense of normalcy to it. Like everyone did this and we'd compare notes because everyone had been on a set. Like, oh, well, what's your second AD like do? And some, and we'd run into people because so much crossover, small town, people would get to be, everybody knew everybody. So, you know, it wasn't that unusual. So that was helpful. A lot of kids, if their parents weren't in show business or if their parents didn't have a lot of money, sometimes the kid will get a series and the parents will go nuts. They're just bowled over and they go berserk and want to steal the money. Uh, the other is the parents are nice and they're trying to do the right thing, but they don't really know about stuff and they're really naive and people rip them off. So you have the tools, you have the, you have the evil parents who put their kids to work to rob them. And then you have the nice parents who are just deer in the headlights and get completely ripped off by Hollywood. So between the two of them, things can go very, very wrong. Um, but my dad was a manager. So, I mean, it was, wasn't like we didn't know what was happening. So that was helpful. I don't think I had a normal childhood at all, but I don't think I was going to. <laughs> it's already doomed. Um, we did for what Melissa and I used to joke about how they took our childhoods, but we kept stealing it back because every chance we got, we were constantly pulling pranks on the set and acting up and having fun, like I said, going to each other's house. So any chance we got, we were finding ways to be kids and have fun and do stuff. So that was pretty cool. That is cool. Now you mentioned before about Michael Landon running into your makeup room and being excited about Nellie Olson getting married. Oh, yeah. Now you met the man who played your husband was an actor named Steve Tracy. And I understand you became very close friends and that um, he tragically passed away at a young age yep. uh, of AIDS. And I understand that also that that really led you toward working to help prevent and, and bring AIDS awareness and, you know, families, and things like that. Can you tell us a little bit yeah, about yeah. Steve so, and how that happened? 
brilliant actor. Like I said, if you're married on TV, you're either best friends. Right? And so mm-hmm. uh, getting married on TV, especially if you're young, is like being married off in some ancient village because um, you don't pick. You don't pick. Like Melissa Gilbert didn't get to pick Dean Butler, who's a very nice man. But she was like, he's not my type. I'm like, oh, well, too bad. You're marrying him. Um, and so same thing. I'm like, I don't know who this guy's going to be. And of course, they said it was comedy. So, I went, oh, they're going to get a character actor. It might not be somebody good looking. He could be ugly. It could be like, ha, ha, ha. We got the ugly guy. And so we're like doomed. And so Melissa and I are sitting around like every guy who comes on the set is that him, is that him, is that him? So when Steve showed up, we were thrilled because he was adorable, the freckles and the curly hair, sweet, sweet guy. So we hit it off right away. We started hanging out. We'd go out after work and stuff. So we became great friends. So when I left the show and the show ended and everything, we were still friends. We were friends for years. And then in the early 80s, as AIDS started hitting and people started getting sick, in the very early years, like people didn't know what was happening. It's like 81 was the first time they said, hey, there's this thing called AIDS. And people didn't know what was happening. And he knew he was sick, like, oh, gosh, it must be 84, 85. In fact, it took him four doctors to get a proper diagnosis because he came in and said, you know, I think I have AIDS. And they went, no, no, it's not AIDS. And he's like, no, really, it's AIDS. And it, it finally got to a specialist and went, yeah, you're right, and ran the correct test. That's how early it was. Even the doctor's like, no, that's not AIDS. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, so he's quite sick, and he had cancer at the Kaposi sarcoma, which is pretty bad. And this was before any drug. This is before AZT, anything. There's nothing they could do. So he was on experimental drugs, and he died of AIDS in uh, November in 86. He was like 33 young young guy such a nice person and uh i tell you his mom and his sister stood by him his family flew out and helped take care of him his family stood by him his friends stood by him every little house stood by him because he was such a wonderful person he was so tough you know because he was little tiny percival but he was so tough himself here's how tough steve steve tracy was they had an experimental drug they said we want to try it he's like do it and um he had to give himself injections in his leg muscular injections they were very painful and I said, did it hurt? He goes, oh, yeah. In fact, it hurt so bad, several people dropped out of the study because they couldn't do it. I'm like, why are you still in the study? He goes, oh, no, I don't mind. I, I can do it. And I'm like, wow. He said, no, I have high pain tolerance. I'm good. And I said, well, do you think it's going to work? Are you going to be cured? And he looked at me like I was crazy. And he said, oh, no, it's too late for me. It's not going to help me at all. Aww. I said, what? He said, oh, no, I'm, I'll die. This won't save me. It's not enough time. He said, but if I do this, this drug may go on to save other people. So that's why I'm willing to sacrifice myself and do these injections so that they can save other people after I'm gone. He didn't blink. And he was right because it was the interferon thing. And way down the road, they have the antivirals and the AIDS cocktail. And a lot of that came out of that study. So ultimately, yeah, he was right. He helped others. Yeah. Yeah. That was the kind of man he was. I started volunteering at AIDS Project Los Angeles and um, I wound up on the hotline, which is where I met my husband, Bob, who was director of the Southern California AIDS hotline for all of Southern California. And there was a very rigorous training program because you had to answer the phone and you had to be able to answer questions about the different drugs they had. And you had to give referrals of where they could go to a doctor and this and that. But you also had to have training because people would call up in distress. Mothers would call and say, my son just died. I have no one to talk to. And you would have to handle these cases. So we, we learned how to do everything. And then um, a friend of mine who worked another agency said, I'm starting a thing for children. There's a lot of children with AIDS. And some of the agencies have programs for them, but not that many. I want to start a thing, call it Tuesday's Child. And it's specifically for families with children with AIDS. So that like our food bank will have all the baby food and the diapers. Oh, he said, I had a family. They called AIDS Project Los Angeles. And they said, 
God, we don't have diapers and baby formula. We'll see if we can get, we'll have to call someone. He said, so that's, what we're going to do it. I'm in. So we started a whole thing called Tuesday's Child. And, um, we had a couple of hundred families and we took not only the families with, uh, where like the mom had AIDS and then the baby had it. We also had some medically fragile kids, people who adopted kids who were born to heroin addicted or cocaine addicted mothers and who had all sorts of unbelievable medical problems. And we got them all the diapers and the formula and the food and sometimes everything, like all the furniture and the baby stuff and the clothes. We had a Christmas party like you would not believe. I can tell you our first Christmas party, we only had 18 people. Because we had our clients, we invited, we sent out an invite to every children's hospital in the city and said any child, family where the child has cancer or anything else is welcome to come to our Christmas party. We have Santa Claus, we have bicycles, we have toys, and no one would come because they wouldn't be seen at a party with children with AIDS. By three years later, we had 500 people at the party. We had to rent an airplane hangar. <laughs> we had a really good party. We worked it out. We finally got everyone on board. We said, No, you have not been to our Christmas party. You do not know what you are missing. Um, so we had an awesome Christmas party. I had one woman come in, nice young girl with her baby, and she was HIV positive, and her baby was positive. So she was being seen at the hospital and was referred to us. And I'm sitting there making a list. I said, Okay, do you need clothes? Yes. You need clothes? Yes. Do you need a grip? Yep, yep, yep. And I'm going like, Yes, yes, yes. And I go, Wow. Um, so do you need assistance with housing? Yes, actually. It's like, oh, well, we have a guy we can call. We can do, um, do you have assistance with transportation? So I'm checking everything. And finally she says, look, just check everything. I said, what? She said, I was living with my mom, a baby's grandmother, and she just found out that I and the baby are HIV positive and she threw mm-hmm. us out. What you see, the clothes on my back and my purse is literally all I own. So I'm here with my baby. I need housing tonight. And I need clothing and crib and food. We have nothing. We were thrown out of the house. I said, oh, let me make some phone calls right now. Yikes. Mm -hmm. And we hooked her up. We hooked her up. She was okay. That is wonderful to think that your friendship with Steve Tracy from Little House days and what he went through and his selflessness and and being a kind of a guinea pig in some early testing and prevention would sort of turn into this organization to, uh, and, and your involvement in this organization to help people and families and, and to really dig down and say, where are these needs and what are these needs? Cause as you say, you don't often think about all the details, you know, I think there was a marvelous woman at, at the big one AIDS project Los Angeles. And she was a case manager for families, children. I would call her sometimes, go, are they seeing you? She'd go, yeah, yeah, we got them. We got them like the transportation vouchers and stuff. But she said, yeah, we only have so much at our food bank and it's designed for our other 2000 clients who are adults. We only have so much for kids. So we're sending them your way. Cause you have all the children's stuff and everything. And there were people who worked even at AIDS project Los Angeles. Say, do we have children clients? I go, yeah, I just talked to your case manager. You have 110 child clients. Like we do. <laughs> They're they like, well, I don't know. Um, so, but they all came to us and we had families who said, no, I, I come to your place because I have my friends drop me off down the street. They don't know I'm coming here and all that kind of thing. They said, I can't really go be seen going to AIDS Project Los Angeles because the neighbors don't. I mean, it's, it's horrible. But we cro- we cross pollinate with all the different AIDS organizations. Well, do you have something we can get? because they were falling through the cracks. People fall through the cracks. You set up systems to help people who were sick and in trouble, but there's always some gap that somebody forgot. And we found out, we started finding out gaps. We get a phone call and go, hey, does anybody do that? We go, no. Wait, nobody does that? That's a thing? That's a thing nobody's doing? Well, does somebody get on the phone and do it? And so we would do it. That's, that's great. Now, 
you talk about children and helping children who are HIV positive. You also got involved with the National Association to Protect Children, and you've yes. been a chair of that organization as well as a spokesperson. Can you tell us a little bit about that? President of the board, which I never thought would be a thing I would do. Um, so I got this call. We're starting this organization. And again, it's like things that fall through the cracks. We're going to try this other angle. They said, everybody wants to fight child abuse. They said, okay, so we got the police are doing their job. And the prosecutors doing their job. And these people doing their job. Therapists are doing their job. So we get a kid and the kid, he tells, he's going to come forward and, and he testifies at everything. And we even get a conviction. And then the guy goes home with the kid and does no jail time and takes the child home. We're like, wait, what? Well, there's an exception in the law in several states. If you're related to the victim, it's the incest exception. Anyone who is a family member or quote, like a family member living in the home. So like mom's boyfriend, whatever, mm -hmm. can ask for probation, zero time served and still have contact with the child. And in many cases, their record is expunged. So someone could molest, say, all three of their children and all their nieces and nephews and have their record expunged and like open a daycare center the next year. Um, so it was really bad. And these people were not getting trouble. And I was so shocked because when I read the law, the one in California, it was like section 1203, the things that were listed, the crimes that were listed, just like make your hair stand on. And I went, well, surely these are not part of the exception. They're not talking about continuous abuse and multiple victims. Oh, no, that qualifies. Yes, you can just say you're the uncle. And they're I'm like, whoa, 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 what? Um, so we changed that. So we wound up legally changing that in several states. Uh, went into California. We changed that law. And we changed it in, in like six or seven states. And there's a few to go. Uh, and then we started doing things. We found out, obviously, the child pornography problem on the Internet is insane. Well, there's every police department in a big city has what they call ICAC, the Internet Crimes Against Children Task Force. And they're a group of specially trained in forensics and computer police who go on the Internet and they look for the trade in child porn and child trafficking. So they are overwhelmed. So we find out about this. We start talking, go, well, what do you need? And they said, well, we, our budget, it keeps getting cut. We don't have enough people. So we went and lobbied to make sure they got their budget increased. Then we started a training program, training veterans, veteran people come back from Iraq and Afghanistan to work with ICAC, put them through a training to apprentice so that they could do the heavy lifting computer work and the cops could go arrest people. Then we started a thing called the Weiss Center for Child Rescue, where we actually got a bunch of nerds and geeks together and developed technology specifically for the police. Terrific. Again, falling through the things like who would who would think of this? So this is the stuff we're doing. And now we're expanding and partnering with some corporations to do stuff with them to all sorts of childhood education, Internet safety, like kind of like everything. That is great work you're doing. I'm, I'm so happy to hear that there are people like you who are actually looking for those gaps and those things mm -hmm. that are falling through the cracks because you can throw a lot of resources at something, but you also have to see where the need is the biggest. Where where are those right. people who are slipping through? And to think and that's what we were hearing laws. from like we were hearing from like state attorney generals and and lawyers of going, I don't know what to do. We did everything right. The guy's still out. We're like, why is he out? Well, we're like, what? And then we're talking ICAC. And we're like, oh yeah, we have this whole team of cops and they're trained and we get on the computer and we know where they are. You know where they are. Yeah. You know where this guy is who's you've seen these videos. Yes, we know where he is. What, what, why isn't he in jail? We don't have enough people to go arrest him. What? So yeah, we closed up that we put in a dent in that. Yep. Yeah, that's that's great. Now on, on a, a different note, you are also doing stand-up comedy 
And okay. you're doing a lot of stuff. You do a stand-up routine or uh, that you, mm-hmm. you call Confessions of a Prairie Biatch. Yeah, I mean, yes, uh, yeah, rhymes with witch, yes. Um, so, yeah, I started, to, I've been doing stand-up since I was like 15, 16 years old. And in 2002, I started doing a one-woman show called Confessions of a Prairie, you know what? And boy, was that thing a hit, because I tell true stories. I talk about my mother being Casper, my father working for Liberace. I tell all the crazy stories and about being on Little House and the craziness of everyone, you know, realizing that people have called me a biatch to my face every single day since I was 11 years old. And it's, you know, very strange existence. It's, it is very weird. I said, people go into to television because they want people to love them. It's, everybody hates me. Um, I'm hated all over the world. And so I tell these crazy stories and it was a hit right away. So big question and answer segment. People love the Q&A. So I started doing that. It was a hit. And then a literary agent came to my show. And next thing I know, I have a book deal. I wrote a book. Uh, same title, uh, Confession of a Prairie Bitch. How I Survived Nellie Olson and Learned to Love Being Hated. Then um, I went to France and uh, I met this guy who said, you know, we could do a French version of your show. It'd be kind of complicated being French. We have to change stuff because some parts won't work because the language thing, but this joke works in French. Oh, okay. Next thing I know, I'm doing a whole French comedy review in France. And um, I just got back from my October fall show. We, we had just done a show January, February, um, 2020. I literally got home just in the nick of time before everything hey. shut down. And then we couldn't do a show that year. And um, then we wound up managing to uh, get it together. We were going to try, but we kept trying, like, we'll try spring, but we can't do fall. And then we almost, and then we almost, and so we finally did it. We did uh, the October 2021 tour, did seven shows in France. And it was all like, you know, vaccine and masking and hand sanitizer and you go sit over there. And we did every precaution known to man. And I tested negative before I left the country. You have to get test negative, can't get on the plane. So, and I said, and I said, you generally want to try not to kill your audience. It's very important to keep your fans alive so they can come to the next show. And as I said, I just did a movie in September, during the pandemic, September 2020, even before the vaccine, I made a movie called Even in Dreams. And you should have seen it. I mean, the set was run like a hospital and it's like, stand over there. And, um, but we did it. We made the movie and nobody got sick and it was awesome. Uh Um, But yeah, so I've been doing stand up in English and in French and a one woman show for like ever. Yeah. I made the New York Times bestseller list. I was very excited. People are still buying it. That's the thing. It's been a couple of years, but every time I turn around and then I put out the audiobook, and everybody went nuts because they liked hearing me read it. And so the audiobook's popular. The book is popular. People are still buying it. I have a store online where I sell it. It's on Amazon. And I can't believe how many people have like saying, I just bought it yesterday. I'm like, you did, did now you're buying it. So um, the book is popular. The show is popular. The French show is popular. I made a movie called Even in Dreams, which got released in theaters. Who the heck gets theatrical release nowadays with an independent film? Got theatrical release with an independent film. I don't know. This woman who produced is amazing. Uh, and oh, and the Blu-ray just came out. Right? It's now out on Blu-ray, Even in Dreams. I'm okay. I'm a villain again. Oh. If you hated me before, you should all go see Even in Dreams and you will hate me even more. Even, even more. more. I can't wait. I am actually going to, I am going to get your audio book because I, I want to hear you read it because you are, you are just so, <laughs> we're about storytelling on this podcast and you are a right? wonderful storyteller. You're a wonderful actress. You have such a heart for what you're doing in the uh fight against AIDS and also to protect children. I think the work you're doing is great. How can people find out more about you 
and the organizations that you're supporting. How can people do that? I'm everywhere. Well, I have a website uh, appropriately called bonnetheads.com, bonnetheads.com. And that's the big fan site. And it's just kind of like, there's links to sort of like everything on there and all sorts of crazy, goofy stuff. Of course, I'm on Facebook as Alison Arngram and uh, there's the Alison Arngram show. Oh, I have an interview show too that I do on Tuesday nights. I interview famous people. So the Alison Arngram show, that's on there. And there's the Confessions uh, of a Prairie Bitch fan site on Facebook. But if you Alison Arngram, you find me. I'm on Twitter. I am on Instagram. I'm at Arngram. I'm just being real easy to find. I'm on everything. Uh, so I have Bonnetheads. And then protect.org, of course, is the website for the National Society to Protect Children. And I have another website I'm working on, just alisonarngram.net, sort of like the more businessy one with my agent's info. Um, but yeah, I'm everywhere. I got I got two websites and three Facebook pages and a Twitter account and an Instagram account. Oh, I'm on TikTok. I've only put up a couple of videos, but I'm totally on TikTok. You're on TikTok. Terrific. I'm on TikTok. <laughs> oh, and I'm on Cameo. You can you can hire me to say happy birthday to your grandma and whatnot on Cameo. Wow. So you are all over the place. So people I am everywhere. and then I've been doing stand up online. There's a thing called stageit.com. When everything shut down, the guy was booking me into clubs in New York and everything closed. And I, my shows were canceled, calls me back and says, there's this thing called stage it. And a lot of our clients are doing this stuff online, doing their shows online. So I wound up doing stand up from my living room. I have backdrops. I set up a whole, I got a whole stage and backdrops and camera and lighting and everything. And I do a whole show in my living room that is broadcast to people that can buy a ticket. You're a busy lady. And oh, I forgot. Uh, there was the readings and the cooking. So I started reading a little, during the pandemic, had to have something to do. I started reading Little House books online, which is awesome. And people loved it. And then I started the cooking videos. So I have a YouTube channel called Who's Going to Do the Cooking with Alice Nargis. <laughs> Nellie couldn't cook. Nellie couldn't cook. It was always, who's going to do the cooking? So I have a who's going to do the cooking um, YouTube channel, and I'm working on the cookbook. You are not letting the uh, moss grow under your feet, are you? No, no. My big fear when everything shut down back in, in, in 2020 was, wow, I won't have anything to do. Uh, that turned out not to be a problem after about a week. And now I have so much to do. I, I just don't even know what to do with myself. I'm like, I'm so busy. I'm out of my mind. Um, but yeah, uh, I always find stuff to do. And as I said, you know, and, and the pandemic is not over yet. I just got out of France in time and they're saying, uh, numbers are going up. You probably couldn't do a show this week. So we're going to go through a few more cycles of this. And I may be in my living room in a bonnet reading for a while, uh, but I'm ready. Oh, I got, good. I got more books. I got more show I can do shows out of the kitchen, the living room, the bathroom. I don't care. Anywhere. Anywhere. I have to ask you this question. I'm going to close with this. Allison, what do you want your legacy to be? Wow. Um, well, I always like to say, you know, you should make yourself useful. I don't want to be a waste of oxygen. I tried not to waste my celebrity or fame. I mean, I always say people who are famous, you could just pop up on TV and say, adopt a puppy, plant a tree, save the whales, whatever. And how many millions of people would do it? So you can use any kind of fame for, for good. Uh, and so I encourage people to do that. Um, I feel like I haven't wasted that. And I try to make the world a better place. You certainly have been doing that. And I know you will continue to do that. I want to ask you this question now. Is it okay if I still hate Nellie Olson, even though you're such a nice person? Yes, yes. I mean, if you didn't, I didn't do my job. I did my job. If you really, if you're watching the show and you just want to throw something at the television, 
You just want to reach for the screen and slap me upside the head. I am doing my job correctly. And that's why when people come up and go, I hate you. I hate you so much. You were so awful. I can't believe how much I hate you. I say, thank you. Thank you. You're too kind. And that's why I say, go see even in dreams. You really hate me. I'm a, I'm a music manager and this lovely girl who's trying to stick to her values in the music industry and keep her band together. And I'm just awful and try to ruin her life. So yeah, you'll, you'll really hate me in that too. Can you say goodbye to me and our listeners in the voice of Nellie Olson? Could you, would you be able to do that? Much, much, much like my, my mother, it's kind of me. So, so to James and everyone there. Well, James, I suppose your little show was all right. And all of you little country girls watching this, if you have obviously nothing better to do, thank you for having me. It's been your pleasure to have me on your little show. Thank you. <laughs> I love it. Allison, I, I really want to thank you for your, for your time and for all that you do. And I hope you have a wonderful holiday season. And I oh, wish I you all the best on all your endeavors and all, all the things that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you so much. For making a big turkey, big turkey. Enjoy. And I hope you have a great day. I will. You too. Bye-bye. So. For all of our listeners, keep discovering and telling stories that inspire you and others. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Your History, Your Story. Please subscribe, share, and check out our website at yourhistoryyourstory.com for episode notes and bonus content. We'd love to hear from you if you have any questions, comments, or a story to tell. Be well and God bless.